This is Shakespeare Unbarred, the podcast where I try to get you excited about Shakespeare one play at a time. Today, one of Shakespeare's greatest villains has the time of his life. It's time for the tragedy of Othello. I take it much unkindly that thou, Iago, who hast had my purse, as if the strings were thine, shouldst know of this. Blood, but you'll not hear me. Thus do I ever make my fool my purse. Be thou assured, good Cassio, I will do all my abilities in my behalf. I like not that. Was not that Cassio parted from my wife? Beware, my lord, of jealousy. It is the green-eyed monster which doth mock the meat it feeds on. Take heed of perjury. Thou art on thy deathbed. Okay, as always, we are going to start with a short summary. How short? Siri, set the timer for one minute. Okay, I've set it. Just remember, a watch iPhone never boils. All is rotten in the state of Venice. Othello, a black moor and a Venetian general, has married the beautiful Desdemona, who is white, against her father's wishes. The marriage was discovered thanks to the machinations of Iago, Othello's best friend, but secret nemesis. The new couple arrive in Cyprus, along with Iago, Iago's wife, and Cassio, one of Othello's ensigns. Iago, angry that Cassio was promoted instead of him, tricks Othello into thinking that Cassio and Desdemona are having an affair. With the help of a stolen handkerchief and the scoundrel Roderigo, Iago's machinations prove successful. Cassio is disgraced and Othello becomes convinced of his wife's infidelity. Iago sends Roderigo to kill Cassio, but Roderigo fails, and Iago ends up killing him to keep him from revealing the truth. Othello kills Desdemona, only after which Iago's wife realizes the truth. Iago kills her in revenge for betraying him, as Othello realizes that he has been duped. Othello kills himself, and Iago is given over to Cassio to be punished. Robust and endlessly versatile, Othello has remained one of Shakespeare's most popular tragedies. Like Richard III, with which it shares several traits, Othello is a play which rests entirely on the shoulder of its central villain. But Richard was fighting for the crown of England, and Iago is fighting for something much less. The stakes are considerably lower, and yet the play remains electric, precisely because Iago, like Richard, lets the audience in on his plan. We spend the entire play knowing more than the more of Venice, and are forced to watch him slowly come undone. Watching Othello is kind of like watching a car wreck. We see it coming, and can do nothing but sit and wait for the crash to occur. Along with Macbeth, this is the simplest of Shakespeare's plays in terms of plot, which is probably another reason for its popularity. Many of Shakespeare's plays are full of intricacies, which can get lost in the shuffle, but the plot to Othello is so simple that it's hard for even the most amateur production to make a mess of it. The script has few digressions, meaning that the text that is often presented is usually close to the one Shakespeare wrote, not a common theme when it comes to some of Shakespeare's other plays. Now, speaking as a playwright, I'd argue that the script to Othello is one of Shakespeare's gems. From a technical standpoint, it is of superior worth and deserves to be studied as much as Hamlet or King Lear. We open in Medeus Res, which is a fancy way of saying the action has already started. Othello and Desdemona are already married, and the action doesn't really let up for the entire first act, as we are instantly drawn into a trial held to determine the lovers' fates. From there until the brutal conclusion, the tension never really stops. At first glance, the women seem like they can't equal Shakespeare's other recent feminine creations, but it would be wise not to be too deceived by appearances. At first glance, it certainly seems as if the women are content to be servants to their fathers, husbands, and lovers, an idea that it seems to be made clear when Iago's wife Emilia decides to steal Desdemona's handkerchief. I'm glad I found this napkin. This was her first remembrance from the moor. 
My wayward husband hath a hundred times wooed me to steal it, but she so loves the token, for he conjured her she should ever keep it, that she reserves it ever more about her to kiss and talk to. I'll have the work ta'en out and give it Iago. What he will do with it, heaven knows, not I. I nothing but to please his fantasy. Later, Emilia will ask Iago why he wants it. Be not acknown on it, he snaps, I have use for it. It's hard to imagine a Rosalind or an Isabella obeying such direction, but Amelia bows her head and obeys. But Amelia redeems herself in the fifth act when she reveals the truth about her husband. Amelia is the entire cause of Iago's defeat. She proves her worth in the end by proving she is more than just the sum of her parts. As soon as she realizes what her husband has done, she comes forward with instant conviction. There is no question in her mind that justice trumps any so-called marital duty. Oh God, oh heavenly God. Students, hold your peace. Twill out, twill out, I peace. No, I will speak as liberal as the North. Let heaven and man and devils, let them all, all, all cry shame against me. Yet I'll speak. Be wise. Get you home. I will not. Fire your sword upon a woman. Oh, thou Dalmore, that handkerchief thou speakst of, I found by fortune and did give my husband. For often with a solemn earnestness, more than indeed belonged to such a trifle, he begged of me to steal it. Villainous whore. Iago, genius that he is, has accounted for everything in his great scheme, but he can't account for Amelia, precisely because he barely acknowledges that she exists. As for Desdemona, the only other woman with a major role, she both defies her father by marrying the Moor and tries to work on Cassio's behalf after the soldier has been disgraced. Now there's also the fact that she bravely embarks on an interracial marriage at a time when this was hardly the norm. All of this suggests an inner strength that some productions don't always give her an opportunity to demonstrate. Neither Desdemona or Emilia will go down in history as the greatest characters in Shakespeare's repertoire, but at least they attempt to be masters, or should I say mistresses, of their fate. Shakespeare's decision to structure Othello, much as he did Richard III, guarantees that our sympathies will always lie with Othello and Desdemona. We know that they are being wronged. It would be a much different play if one only presented the scenes featuring the doomed couple. If we did not know that Desdemona was innocent, what would we think of Othello's jealousy? What would we think of Desdemona? Watching the play as we do from our place of superiority, it is easy to pity Othello for falling prey to the green-eyed monster, but it would not be so simple if Iago, or rather Shakespeare, had not let us in on the plot. The Moor's jealousy isn't entirely unfounded. As we saw in The Merry Wives of Windsor, the notion of the cuckold has a long and storied tradition, and elements of the Moor's jealousy can be seen in the irrational jealousy of Master Ford. A 17th century audience might have felt a great resonance in Brabantio's famous warning to Othello right before the general takes his daughter to Cyprus. Look to her more, if thou hast eyes to see. She has deceived her father, and may thee. In other words, once a cheater, always a cheater. That there is a difference between lying to your father and cheating on your husband might not have been a distinction Othello or Brabantio could grasp. Given 17th century views on women and marriage, it's interesting to contemplate what an audience might have thought of Othello in the final act had Desdemona actually been untrue. 
I'm sure Shakespeare was contemplating it. He may have known that, in creating Iago, he was drawing upon sexist conversations that he himself might have overheard. Good name in man and woman, dear my lord, is the immediate jewel of their souls. Hmm? Who steals my purse steals trash. Tis something, nothing, tis mine, tis his, and has been slaved to thousands. But he that filches from me my good name, robs me of that which not enriches him, and makes me poor indeed. By heaven! I'll know thy thoughts. You cannot, if my heart were in your hand, nor shall not, whilst tis in my custody. Huh? Ah, beware, my lord, of jealousy. It is the green-eyed monster which doth mock the meat it feeds on. That cuckold lives in bliss, who, certain of his fate, loves not his wronger. But, oh, what damned minutes tells he, oh, who dotes yet doubts, suspects yet strongly loves. Oh, misery. Iago's villainy is an all-too-familiar one, and was only possible because of an innate sense of rivalry that already existed when it came to romance. As another Shakespearean lover once remarked, friendship is constant in all other things, save in the office and affairs of love. In both Richard III and Othello, we see Shakespeare making a strategic decision to make the villain into the story's main protagonist. It's a narrative strategy that has been repeated ever since, and if you don't believe me, go read Gone Girl or watch House of Cards. In showing us the story from the villain's point of view, Shakespeare is able to not only show us the car wreck, but also tell us how it occurred. Richard III and Othello aren't the only ones of Shakespeare's plays in which we are let into the villain's heads, but they are the only ones in which the villain is the main character, and in watching them manipulate the world around them, we are able to see how we ourselves can be manipulated. Richard III's motivations are easy. He wants the crown, and more specifically the power that comes with it. But by the start of the 17th century, when Othello was most likely written, Shakespeare had no interest in easy motivations, and was in a much more nihilistic mood. Troilus and Cressida and Measure for Measure gave us worlds where everyone was corrupt, but at least there the corruption was motivated by greed or lust. With few exceptions, this goes for all the villains in Shakespeare's plays up until now. Only Don John in Much Ado About Nothing and Aaron in Titus Adronicus act monstrous more at a character than as a means to an end. But Iago still surpasses both of them and introduces us to a new type of Shakespeare villain. Here is a man who truly finds joy in being wicked. His immorality is baked into his soul. For 400 years, actors and critics have argued over Iago's motivations for destroying Othello. The winning answers are usually racism, jealousy, or some combination of the two. It's definitely possible that racism is his ultimate motivation, but I question why Iago doesn't just tell us as much. He seems to have no qualms about inviting us into all the other corners of his mind, so why not let us into this one too? Iago absolutely uses racial slurs, but it is significant that he only uses them in order to inflame others. He doesn't appear to ever use them when he is alone. The first time we see him alone, he refers to Othello without any racial epithets. I hate them all, and it is thought abroad that twixt my sheets has done my office. I know not if it be true, but I, for mere suspicion in that kind, will do as if for surety. He holds me well. <laughs> The better shall my purpose work on him. Hmm, Cassio is a proper man. Let me see now. To get his place and to plume up my will in double knavery. How? How? <laughs> After some time, to abuse Othello's ears 
that he is too familiar with his wife. He hath a person and a smooth disposed to be suspected, framed to make women false. The more is of a free and open nature that thinks men honest that but seem to be so, and will as tenderly be led by the nose as asses are. Hmm, I have it. It is engendered. Hell and night must bring this monstrous birth to the world's light. If Iago were a racist, this would be the moment when it would emerge. There is no reason for Iago to hide his racism when he is alone. The only other answer is that it isn't there. This only leaves jealousy as a motivator, but even this is pretty weak. The important line here is, I know not if it be true, but I, for mere suspicion in that kind, will do so as if for surety. Iago is little proof that Othello actually conspired to be promoted over him, but Iago doesn't care about proof. He has decided to destroy Othello with little regard to what it might cost. He is even willing to trade him wife for wife, as he later admits. That Cassio loves her, I do well believe it. That she loves him, tis apt and of great credit. The more, howbeit that I endure him not, is of a constant, loving, noble nature. And I dare think he'll prove to Desdemona a most dear husband. Now, I do love her too, not out of absolute lust, though peradventure I stand accountant for as great a sin, but partly led to die at my revenge, for that I do suspect the lusty moor hath leapt into my seat. The thought whereof doth like a poisonous mineral gnaw my innards, and nothing can or shall content my soul till I am evened with him, wife for wife. Or, failing so, yet that I put the more at least into a jealousy so strong that judgment cannot cure. Which thing to do if this poor trash of Venice, whom I leash for his quick hunting, stand the putting on, I'll have our Michael Cassio on the hip, abuse him to the moor in the rank garb, for I fear Cassio with my nightcap too, make the moor thank me, love me, and reward me for making him egregiously an ass and practising upon his peace and quiet even to madness. It is here but yet confused. Never his plain face is never seen used. Scholars have suggested plenty of other motivations. Misogyny and unrequited homosexual love or have been popular offers in recent times. But I suspect the truth is at once simpler and harder to accept. Iago destroys Othello for no other reason than he wants to. The story of Othello has been endlessly adapted for the last 400 years, mostly because it's an allegory for one of the oldest stories in human history. The devil comes to tempt an innocent, and the innocent yields. Iago is as close to a devil as Shakespeare will ever put on stage precisely because he encourages Othello to see evil where none actually exists. Iago helps things along by framing Cassio, but he certainly doesn't force Othello to kill Desdemona in her sleep. Like the devil, Iago knows that all of us have the capacity to be either good or evil. And like the devil, Iago creates a situation where we are expected to choose. This idea appears to be a difficult one for most producers of Othello to accept. I've rarely seen Othello played for the allegory that it is. People seem intent on inventing ways to rationalize Iago's behavior. This is understandable. The great appeal of art is that it gives us a world in which the just are rewarded, the wicked are punished, and people's actions are born out of understandable needs. 
In Annie Hall, Woody Allen suggested that we use art to try to improve on life, and that's exactly what we expected to do. Aniago, without a motive, suggests a chaotic world full of anarchy. It is a world without sense, whose ending cannot be surmised. This is more or less the world that Shakespeare gives us in Othello. Othello, Emilia, and Desdemona, innocents that they are, are all dead at the end of the play, and though Iago is defeated, we never see him punished for his sins. Nor does he end the play with any information that helps us understand why he did what he did. In keeping with Shakespeare's new habit of silencing a major character in the fifth act, recall what he's already done to Viola and Isabella, Iago again takes a vow of silence. Demand me nothing. What you know, you know. From this time forth, I never will speak word. All of this certainly conforms with the nihilistic mood Shakespeare had slipped into around the time of the play's composition. After giving us the corrupt world of Measure for Measure and the rancid cynicism of Troilus and Cressida, why wouldn't he give us an Iago who is evil simply because it is in his nature? Othello also comes immediately before the schemers of All's Well That Ends Well and the wicked daughters of King Lear, not to mention the hypocrites found in Timon of Athens or those ambitious plotters in Macbeth. In other words, Aniago, without a sympathetic motive, fits exactly into the sort of story Shakespeare had turned to as he entered the final stage of his career. And now comes the part in the podcast where I talk about film versions of the play I've discussed. There is plenty to choose from in the land of Othello adaptations, but a lot of them crash headfirst into modern sensibilities. It's doubtful Shakespeare had an actor of color portraying Othello back in 1602, and for the next 400 years it was custom for white actors to play Othello in blackface. This custom has continued in film in the 20th century, and so we have several versions that, while serviceable in other respects, feature Caucasian actors like Laurence Olivier, Orson Welles, and Anthony Hopkins as the Moor of Venice. Despite the pedigree of these actors, I can't help but feel that these versions should probably be relegated to wherever films go when they deserve to be watched only by film students and scholars. Traditionalist that I am, even I have to say that some traditions are better left buried. It's also true that in casting the actor of prestige as Othello, these films inherently make it appear as if Othello is the star of the story, which, as I have argued, he is not. It's too bad that Laurence Olivier, Orson Welles, and Anthony Hopkins never had the chance to play Iago instead. Each could have brought a unique perspective on this iconic role. The BBC does get some minor credit for, uh, shall we say, toning down the blackface. Anthony Hopkins is more tanned than anything else, but even so, it still remains uncomfortable to watch. Future adaptations seem to have embraced the notion that Iago is the play's star, beginning with the Oliver Parker version from 1995. Another strong entry in our 1990s Shakespeare canon, this one features Kenneth Branagh as he continues the Shakespearean love affair he started with Much Ado About Nothing. Branagh is a delightful Iago and has a great deal of fun talking to the camera and bending the rest of the cast to his will. As Othello, Lawrence Fishburne does a credible job, and the rest of the cast are serviceable in their respective roles. This may sound like faint praise, but the truth is, is that Othello is a play that lives and dies by its Iago. This is Branagh's film, and everyone else can't help but come across as window dressing. If you want a modern adaptation of Othello, there's also the 2001 film O, which sets everything in a high school and features Josh Harnett as Hugo, a basketball player intent on destroying star athlete Odin James. 
The film follows the general plot of Othello, and while this movie does have its flaws, I have to say it does a good job juxtaposing Shakespeare's story with a modern exploration of the nihilism of teen violence. As always, I'll leave links to everything I've discussed on the show page. Well, that's it for this episode of Shakespeare Unbarred. Next up, it's Shakespeare's last stab at a comedy better known as All's Well That Ends Well. If you want to find out more information about me and the things I do with my time, you can check out my website at www.joelfishbane.net. You can find all the episodes of Shakespeare and Bard there, and you can also find information about how to get your hands on my book, The Thunder of Giants. Available from St. Martin's Press, it's about two eight-foot-tall women who struggle to survive in a world too small to contain them. Pick up your copy today, preferably at full price. Thanks for listening to Shakespeare and Bard. 26 plays down, 12 to go. Will Shakespeare as a play. Let's go and cough through it.